have a second half of life that has joy and meaning. And then they start experiencing all these symptoms and things like, you know, God has a sense of humor. I mean, what is going on here? This is just not fair. So understanding that very first step, that education is key. But the next step is so critical, and that's taking action. Hello, 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 and welcome to Moving Through Menopause. I'm really excited today to meet Dr. Ron Eker. Tell us where you are in the world. Please do. I am in Augusta, Georgia. For many people, they associate that as the home of the Masters Golf Tournament. Of course, I associate it with world-class care for women. That's what I associate it with. Uh, so that's uh, I've been in practice, private practice of obstetrics and gynecology here in Augusta, Georgia for about 35 years now. And for those who aren't familiar, Augusta is about a couple of hundred miles east of Atlanta. And I know a lot of people are familiar with Atlanta. So we're, that's, that's our mode of measurement. Okay. Well, I, I like that you give a, a, a reference point. Uh, I'm sure all the geographers will be appreciating that. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming along and having a chat with us this afternoon. I'm on a mission to do my part to share information and, and not only any old information, but sound scientific information, but also with a little hint and a flavor of holistic approaches to health and wellness. And Dr. Ika has been immersed in this world of women's health for just about as long as he can remember. Tell us, tell us a little bit about your journey in, uh, in women's health. Well, I went into medical school really not sure which direction I was going. Initially, I thought I was going to be in general surgeon. Oh. And I realized early on in my first clinical rotation in obstetrics that this was this was the calling. This was the place that I was meant to be. It was it was a very quick reminder of the miracle of birth. We became so immersed in the mechanics of birth through medical school. But when I first actually had the experience of being a part and having the the honor of being a part in what is oftentimes one of the most important events, if not the most important event in a, in a, a person's life is the, the birth of their child. It gave me an understanding that that was what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. So as a obstetrician gynecologist, I, I like most young OBGYNs, focused my practice for the first many, many years on the obstetrical side. Uh, but then about 20 years ago, really got very interested in the perimenopause and menopause. I was seeing a, an amazing lack of information in an era that was quickly becoming virtually a third of a woman's life. Large number of women living well until their 80s and 90s. And with the average age of menopause in, in the U.S. right now, anyway, as 51, again, you're going to very likely spend a third of your life in menopause. And I was seeing that there was a, a real dearth of information and there was a chasm and a, a lack of 
options for women. So I got very interested in in that time frame. Mm-hmm. I can remember I, at that point I was still well below the average menopause age and I would be going speaking to groups of women who were 10, 15, 20 years older and average. And I'll never forget a lady coming up to me after a talk and, and looking at me and says, Dr. Eker, I love what you say. I love what you teach, but you're the wrong age and the wrong sex. <laughs> so I, I, I got it. I understood. Of course, now I'm still the wrong sex, but I am the right age. I'm oh, very good. much past that. So I do I do understand some of the associations with aging. But for the last 10 or 15 years, my practice has really been focused on menopause, perimenopause mm-hmm. and postmenopause. And also along those lines, went back about, gosh, six years now and got board certified in bariatric medicine, weight management medicine. Oh, wow. Because again, this was really in response to my own patients. You know, I like to feel like I've always been a student and I've learned more from my patients than I ever learned from a textbook. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the reasons that I gravitated towards menopause and perimenopausal medicine was again, patients coming in with issues and not really knowing where to get answers. Well, the same thing began occurring with weight management. I was seeing in my own practice that seven out of 10 women that were walking through my door were either overweight or obese. And I realized that if I was truly going to provide a service and if I was really gonna focus on wellness and look at health, not just from the perspective of the gynecological aspect, but really Mm -hmm. looking at the whole woman, Mm -hmm. that I had to entertain that as part of of this holistic approach to their healthcare. That training is probably 75% lifestyle and nutrition. Mm -hmm. So it's a real enhancement to what unfortunately was a very poor education in nutrition. Unfortunately, that is just a, a real deficit. And so this was a tool to help me reimagine and understand the way I can approach women, uh, not just from the standpoint of their gynecological health, but more broadly encompassing things like weight management and nutrition and stress and all the issues that are associated with this transition, this, this menopause time. Coming to the kinds of things that are associated with the transition, and uh, and I say this uh, without any hesitation, I think I had most of them. Something that I haven't talked an awful lot about is fatigue. It's a, a kind of a whole nother level of fatigue that I've never experienced before in my um, in my life, really. I've always been a very energetic person. And so that feeling where it's almost like the light went out, so it's about half past two in the afternoon. Uh, and, you know, and it was really alien to me. So help us to understand, first of all, why on earth this is happening to us around the time of menopause when we might never have felt it before. Well, it's, it's a great point, Philip, and it's very characteristic of many symptoms around the menopause, whether it's physical or emotional, or there are changes that are happening that can trigger a lot of those symptoms. And the, the coping mechanisms that many women have used, and this applies very much to fatigue, uh, that have worked very well for them in the past, 
-hmm. no longer are as effective. What's important to understand is your experience is not unusual. There are a, a number of women that will complain of this lack of energy and fatigue. And I think to start with, it's very important to make a distinction and be very granular about what we mean with fatigue, because some people interpret that in different ways. Some people talk about it more from an energy level. Some people talk about it as a muscle weakness. Some even talk about it in the in the context of more motivation than than anything else. And it's important for a woman to really be introspective and understand what she really means because a good doctor will actually force her to be very clarifying in what that is because that's really the first key in dealing with something like this in menopause. The first point is it's normal. You're not broken. It's very real. And it's, it's, I won't say it's universal, but it's extremely common. And that's exactly why I included that as one of the main pillars in the online course that I've put together for menopause management and menopause treatment, because it is such a common and universal problem. And it's one that has tentacles that affects almost every other aspect of your life. Yeah. And that's another important understanding. So when we talk about fatigue, let's just let's just say it's we'll go with the energy level explanation because that seems to be the the more common. And it's also very important at this stage to know that fatigue is largely a symptom. It's a result of other things that are bubbling up from below. You and I are old enough to remember maps. You remember maps. That was long before GPS. And you would look at a map of London and there were all these roads leading into, into uh, London. And that's kind of the way I view fatigue. Fatigue is like London itself. And all these roads leading into it are the multitudes of underlying causes that can result in that symptom. And one of the first things that I do as a clinician is try to rule in and rule out identifiable causes of that. Mm -hmm. Yes, we know simply the menopause itself can manifest as fatigue, but we don't want to wear hormone blinders. We don't want to immediately say that that is the, the sole cause because we can very commonly miss a lot of other midlife issues that are associated with fatigue. I mean, there's so many different things. Uh, I mean, everything from anemia to obesity. Here's one that's really interesting now, and that's post-COVID or long COVID. Yes. Yes. That fatigue is one of the leading symptoms of people who have experienced COVID. And it's not just COVID, any post-viral syndrome. In fact, there's a lot of a lot of studies that think that things like chronic fatigue syndrome itself is secondary to an earlier viral infection. And it's the immune reaction to that persistently that leads to the fatigue associated with that, that problem. 
there can be a variety of things like depression, like mm -hmm. thyroid disorder, uh, diabetes, uh, mm -hmm. heart disease, dehydration, food allergies. Again, there's so, uh, just a wealth of particular underlying causes. So the very first thing I do when I have a patient come in the office is we drill down with their individual scenario, their, their history, what medicines they're taking. A lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of medications that mm. have fatigue as a side effect. Uh, people, a lot of people are on, a lot of women are on medicines, beta blocker medicines for hypertension, for example. Mm. And it's a well-known side effect of those medications. Some of the antidepressant medicines, which are extremely common, can have fatigue as a side effect. And interestingly, depression itself can have a symptom of fatigue. So there's a bit of a detective work in that. You always wonder, well, is it is it the treatment or is it the problem? And sometimes it takes a, a bit of digging to really determine that. Mm -hmm. So you really want to look at the individual and not make any suppositions initially about the cause and explore the different potential causes. And sometimes that involves simply talking with the patient. I had a very wise colleague in medicine tell me once that if you'll just sit and listen to someone, they will tell you what their problem is 90% of the time. You don't mm -hmm. have to do blood tests. You don't have to do exam. You just listen to them. And that's a, an art I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of us have lost, but it's absolutely critical and, and and i know with what you do especially with physical therapy and the treatments mm -hmm. listening to a person tell you what their issues are is is critical so we, we've got to listen we've got to we've mm -hmm. got to sit there and and pay attention to the individual and then if we do identify something before you can progress on to treatment you really want to assess cause it's it's all driven by cause and sometimes that cause may not be overt. It may be much more subtle. Now, what is interesting about menopause in particular is menopause can be a first cause of fatigue. Uh, mm. Many women, that's a revelation. That's one of one of the exciting things that, that you're doing is you're educating folks and where they're understanding what these symptoms are. I can't tell you how many times I'll see a woman and they will be very surprised when I explain to them that some of their symptoms, like fatigue, may simply be secondary to the menopausal time frame they're in. They had no idea that that was related. Yeah. So that understanding and that awareness right off the bat is exceedingly beneficial and for a lot of women, uh, very comforting. Well, yes, because, you know, you feel like an oddity when uh, when all these things are happening to you that didn't used to happen to you that you either feel like an oddity or or somehow resigns to the fact that this is age and this is what aging feels like and uh, and that this is what we should live to expect and uh, and not and not challenge that really in a way so so i think um, this is the key thing for me that what you've described is a very complex puzzle it's uh, it's at least a thousand pieces of, of jigsaw there right there that you've just described that that can uh, can seem like you know something that just doesn't fit together 
But actually with the knowledge and the awareness, we can start to piece that puzzle together. And I think the, the most difficult thing is this, this very uh, bi-directional nature of things so that so stress, depression, or, or can make us feel fatigued, but equally fatigue can make us feel stressed and depressed. So, you know, unpicking that puzzle really does take expert help for one. And, uh, and knowing that menopause is part of this puzzle, it, it has been the case that people have been dismissed with that. You know, oh, it's your hormones. And that's, and even the knowledge that fatigue or, you know, insomnia, which I had really badly, uh, it can be a symptom of merely the fluctuating hormone levels, but still not to be kind of written off at that point as, oh, it's your hormones. And uh, so knowledge is one thing. We, we definitely want to understand this stuff. But equally, I want people to be able to feel like like you just said, you've got another possibly 30 years of, of living post-menopause. And, you know, let's make those good years the best years. Why not the best years of your life, you know? And so having somebody who will listen to us and really work to unpick that puzzle. You know, you talked about anemia. Uh, we, have, can, we can have heavy bleeding that can make us uh, iron deficient. And then, and then we're fatigued because of that. So... You know, it is really about finding the causes, if there indeed are any. If it is about the fluctuating hormones, then, you know, there's things we can do about that too, potentially. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think to pick up on, on what you, you just said is that awareness is so key. And that's the first step of any, any therapeutic interaction is number one is education. It's awareness. It's knowing that as much as you can now i'm not telling people that they need to get their phd in hormones but i think that a certain level of understanding not only is beneficial in giving you some comfort in as i as i hear people say all the time i'm falling apart well this helps this helps to reassure folks that yes this is normal not in a patronizing fashion. So oftentimes every malady that you experience in midlife is yeah. dumped in the uh, file of hormones and, and menopausal changes. And that's just mm -hmm. as destructive as, as not recognizing what things can be hormonal. Mm -hmm. uh, Margaret Mead, the, the famous anthropologist, used to talk about postmenopausal zest, which is that time of life where if you're able to embrace all the wonderful things and all the energy, the wisdom that you've accumulated, that this is really a time for you to really be joyful and excel. And it's so frustrating for so many women because they intuitively feel that they, they may be at a good place financially. They, they have all this experience and they're finally at a place where they can really do things that are meaningful and have a second half of life that has 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 joy and meaning. And then they start experiencing all these symptoms and things like, you know, God has a sense of humor. I mean, what is going on here? This is just not fair. So understanding that very first step, that education is key. But the next step is so critical, and that's taking action.
mm-hmm. and doing something with that knowledge. Yeah. Partnering, as you mentioned, partnering with somebody who has uh, that experience, that knowledge base, you know, finding your Yoda. So you take that action. And then the third step, which I think a lot of women don't do, which I think can be incredibly valuable, is after they've been educated, after they've taken some action, then you've got to sit and evaluate it. It, it, Is what I'm doing getting me closer to where I want to be? Oftentimes we, we learn something, we start applying it, and then maybe we see some success, maybe we don't, whether it's with herbals or sleep therapy or medicines or exercise and you don't really then take a critical formal look at is what I'm doing getting to where I need to be and of course that intuitively means you have to have thought about where you want to be so that's Mm -hmm. tied into that process is what what do I want to accomplish this year do I want to get rid of these hot flashes do I want to reignite my sex drive do I want to get energy back and and how am i going to assess that what is my endpoint you can't measure something unless you know where you're heading and where you're going so i think a lot of times women don't have that framework that does somewhat formalize it and gives it some structure but i think that helps also give them direction i concur with with everything you just said and you know what I find is people have got really quite short memories as well as the other thing for how bad things were. And you know that that's kind of a good thing that we do want to move past it and, and get beyond it. But equally, sometimes the progress that you've made gets lost in the fact that you you're not reflecting on where you've come from and and the differences that whatever it is that you're doing, the actions that you are taking are making. And, and so it is really good to hark back and, and to have written out some goals or have some steps that you are uh, planning to take. And then you can reevaluate, well, did I do what I said I was going to do? And, uh, and how, how do I feel now that I've done that compared with how I felt back then? Uh, because you can kind of get a little bit lost in that. And, and you know what you were talking about, having a guide, somebody to take the journey with you, alongside you, guide you, you know, whatever your choices are. You know, this is when it gets difficult because we often are making multifaceted interventions and that, the, you know, the solution isn't necessarily uh, like a randomized control trial, is it? You know, that lifestyle interventions in particular potentially have impact on other things and that maybe it's a recipe that we're looking for uh, and it's not just one thing. So, you know, thinking of these recipes, I, I favor, you know, nutrition, uh, sleep, movement is my MO, that's what I always say. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and actually, you know, when I do do my research, movement seems to be something that has a place with just about every symptom of menopause. Yes, hundred yeah. percent. There, if I had to really characterize a true fountain of youth, it is activity. Now, I didn't say exercise. Exercise, we all know, is going out for a walk or riding a bike. But I'm a big believer in the activity of daily living, 
and mm-hmm. just just simple simple steps of being more active whether it's taking stairs or whether it's standing up when you can that's always individualized based on your your particular scenario but there's very few folks that can't be more active in one way or the other than what they currently are and you're exactly right even things like hot flashes mm-hmm. are improved with exercise and activity and we know now that there is tremendous amount of chemical action from muscles. They're not there just to help you to move, but they're actual little factories that are producing all these chemicals that uh, that are wide ranging in their impact. And especially when we think about menopause and aging, uh, we think about things like dementia and cognitive decline and Alzheimer's. And we know that movement and motion and muscle activity produces things like brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF, which is miracle growth for the brain. It's absolutely, absolutely essential at helping to keep those connections intact and to help trim away the bad and build up the, the new so the movement in motion for virtually almost, I'm trying to think literally, is there a single menopausal symptom that in some way can't be benefited? And I'm having a hard time coming up with that. It's like a little mobile that we used to hang over our kids' cribs before all the lawyers said we couldn't do that, where you would pull on the giraffe and the hippo would move. And that's what happens in the menopause with these hormonal changes, with these changes of aging changes of endocrine function, none of them happen in isolation. They're all intertwined and interdependent. And it, 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 that goes into this recipe you were talking about and why it's so critical that it has to be individualized. Mm-hmm. Because if I just made a blanket recommendation to someone about, we'll just say hormone replacement, well, I, I darn well better know what's going on with their thyroid because I know that those hormones are going to interact with that thyroid. I better know what's going on with stress because that's going to impact your adrenals and that's going to impact the hormones and how they're metabolized. I better know about their activity level and how they're sleeping because all these things are intertwined. And that's why it has to be individualized. There's no cookbook for any of this. Now, we can make blanket statements, and we, and we have to because we're dealing with large populations. And, but it really comes down to the individual in your body and what you're experiencing. No woman goes through menopause the same. There's a lot of similarities, but no one transitions through this time frame exactly the same because you're a unique person. Each person has their unique health history, their unique background. Uh, their their unique needs and goals and uh, so it it really comes down to trying to get as much information and knowledge as you can in general and then with oftentimes the help of a knowledgeable uh, person working with you mm-hmm. to define that in the context of you as an individual and come up with not a recipe but your recipe because that's really where the magic is, is when you begin to see, hey, this is, this is something that is unique to me. And just as unique your, as your experience is, so unique is the approach to 
treating whatever issues are happening at the time. So it, it that that's part of the challenge, but it's also part of the joy when you see that all come together and and um, somebody really respond. Yeah. Well, you make a very good point about uh, individualized approaches. Uh, we are all unique in our genetic content, if you like. For lots of people who are, you know, mild symptoms, perhaps, there are general rules of thumb, uh, things that will certainly be more help than harm. And that's wonderful if people can embrace these uh, generalized approaches. But if, you, if you're really struggling with something, then it really can take just a bit more unpicking and, uh, and, and help and support. And so, you know, having people who, who can treat us in a holistic sense, it's really important to me that you, people are willing to consider that, uh, you know, the aromas that we smell, the chemicals in our homes, our exposure to toxins in, in our environments, you know, all of these things have potential uh, negative consequences and and so why not use all the tools in the toolbox is kind of how I feel about it you know well and the other the other thing we've seen specifically as it relates to menopause is obviously these things like environmental toxins uh, I had a lady not long ago who was having terrible sinus issues for years and we did everything we knew to take care of that and then she finally had water damage in her home and she was getting all that fixed and saw incredible mold under the floor of her home that was fixed and she's been a new person. Mm -hmm. So that, that is, those are just examples of, of how we've got to oftentimes think beyond just the, the superficial. My point was that in menopause, with all these environmental things happening, largely because of hormonal shifts, you can see a magnification of, mm. for example, someone who may be prone to clinical depression. And in that, I'm talking about big D depression as opposed to little d depression. Little d depression is an emotion. It's mm. a reaction to an event. Big D depression is a clinical medical issue. And I think it's very important that people make that distinction. And we oftentimes in menopause, we'll see somebody who is doing very, very well, who, who has big D depression, like any other medical problem. And then in the menopause, because of these hormonal shifts and these changes, it literally changes how their brain is reacting to things like serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine. Yeah. So they were going along doing quite well, knowing that they have this this problem. And then all of a sudden it blows up, not mm -hmm. because of anything environmental, not because of a change in a, a marriage or a, a stress to the job. It's because of these menopausal changes. So women need to understand not only can that be a trigger for these other things, but there are options, there are choices. Going back to what you were mentioning about kind of the traditional and non-traditional approaches. There are ways, uh, if I do anything for my patients, it's present options. It's mm -hmm. make sure that they understand it's not either hormones or not hormones, either natural approaches or synthetic approaches. It's, it's whatever it takes, whatever works for you individually, but knowing that 
there is value in all of those approaches. Now, I have a high standard. I'm not going to look at the back of a cereal box and that's going to be my guide for how to treat somebody. Or I'm not going to just say, oh, Aunt Sally did this, so it worked for her. It must be fine to try. I, I, like any other good clinician, has a standard that we expect. We want to see empirical evidence. We want to see studies. We want to see science. And luckily, in the last 15, 20 years, the volume of good clinical uh, double-bind placebo-controlled studies using things like herbs and supplements and, and other what people would call non-traditional or functional approaches, mm-hmm. the data's there. So we have access to good science now. Part of my role is to cut through the noise and to be able to identify the wheat from the chafe and be able to say, yes, here's an approach that would be out of the mainstream but I can also show studies where it has been more effective than a placebo. It's mandatory that we still have very high standards because actually, if I'm telling a patient to do something, I better darn well know that I've got the backup of adequate science or it's, it's my reputation and I'm not willing to sacrifice that for anecdotal evidence. The flip side of that is you don't want to ignore that whole body of evidence, which unfortunately, I think a lot of healthcare practitioners are in camps of where they're, I'm either a functional medicine doctor or I'm a, uh, uh, an allopathic doctor and, and there's no crossover, which I think is a, a huge disservice to patients. I think a lot of very, very good science in, in both areas. In fact, even, I don't even like the word alternative medicine because it's, it's still medicine. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah traditional or non-traditional it's just it's if it works it works if it's proven it's proven if it's mm-hmm. valid it's valid mm-hmm. and, and we need to get rid of some of those labels yes it might not be your cup of tea but uh, but if it works and there's evidence then uh, yeah who are we to say you know I did want to uh, just ask you a question about uh, resistance training. Now, how does training play into fatigue or fatigue and training? You know, because we know that the sleep fatigue puzzle is something that goes together and that movement is potentially going to aid restful sleep if we are done something during our day, like you say, more activity during our day. But then when we take it to the... Uh, I'll say to the other end of the spectrum and when we're doing very strenuous kinds of activities and powerlifting definitely would be uh, classified amongst those marathon running, you know, those kinds of activities, they are potentially depleting by the very nature. And so probably require even more specialist support in terms of uh, nutritional supplementation and, and such like. Uh, is this something in your sphere of expertise? Yeah, very much so. You know, the the whole area of uh, resistance training versus aerobic training and menopause is is a very important one for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. The aerobic training, of course, is extremely beneficial with regards to all the different things we mentioned, whether it's longevity, whether it's immune function, whether it's e reduction and well-known reduction of menopausal symptoms, we don't really have to worry with most people with regards to 
the fatigue of overtraining. Uh, there are those individuals, like you said, who are the marathon runners and, and midlife athletes who are competitive. Yes, you can get fatigue as an example of overtraining. But again, that's not usually what we have to, to worry about. It's the, the average folks are not going to be in that category. Uh, but you do want to be intuitive and listen to your body. Now, when it comes to resistance training in general, absolutely a critical part of your activity in midlife. And I'm not talking about powerlifting. I'm talking about uh, bands, weight-resistant exercises of your own weight, uh, dumbbells, uh, machines, uh, even with light weights. Anything that puts resistance on the muscles will do two things. Number one, it helps prevent the natural decline in muscle mass as you age. We know that happens sometimes in women starting around 35 or 40, and it is accelerated in the menopause because oftentimes you get a natural drop in testosterone, which is produced by the ovaries. People forget about that, but you do see a, an acceleration of muscle mass decline. Well, you don't want that. You, you want to preserve that muscle mass. Muscle mass is one of those gauges for health span, for longevity. People with higher muscle mass, in particular strength, has been associated with uh, decreased all-cause mortality in, in women over the age of 50. The second very important area where that plays a role is in bone health. Mm -hmm. We know that uh, putting stress on the bones, which basically comes from being active and an oftentimes resistance activity, is what stimulates, again, the reduction in that natural tendency to lose bone over time. People know the terms osteopenia, osteoporosis, and that's a real problem for a significant number of women in the menopause. And it's not so much a problem in and of itself is what that results in. And that's the, that's the increased risk of fractures. Mm. You know, a woman today in her 60s, if she fractures her hip, she has almost a 40% chance of being bedridden and almost a 50% chance of dying within the subsequent three years because of all the sequela and the problems associated. So it's a big deal. So resistance training, even two days a week for 15 or 20 minutes at a time can have profound beneficial effects specifically for women in the menopause. You know, you talk in my language when you start to talk about resistance training. I'm, you speak preaching to the converted. Let's spread that message because it's so, so important uh, for people. And, and not to be put off by thinking you're going to get big muscles as a woman. That can be, for some women, that's off-putting. That's not what's going no. to happen. We're, we're preserving the tissues. And you know what you said, actually, you know, not wanting to frighten people. But the risk of fracture, you know, it, it is very real. And actually, you know, I was with somebody today who said, oh, uh, I seem to have got away with menopause. Now, this, this always kind of fills me with a conflict. I'll say a conflict uh, that, you know, do we get away with menopause when some of the symptoms can actually be silent? You know, so bone health is not sexy. Bone health... Uh, you don't get symptoms until it's a little bit on the side of being late uh, to the party. So, yeah, and the same with cardiovascular disease, and oh, that's the number one killer of women over the age of fifty is heart disease. And more women die of heart disease every year than breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and cervical cancer combined. Mm. So we've, we, and that's often been called the silent killer. And mm. I've got 
very aggressive in my menopausal women in looking at risk factors for cardiovascular disease in particular, because unfortunately, women have been really maligned over the years and not given uh, the same kind of testing. Did you, up until a decade ago, m the vast majority of tests and studies done on heart disease were done exclusively on men. And we all know men and women are different. And that applies to their hearts as well as it does to their hormones. Mm -hmm. and there are some unique features. We're even now seeing that a woman's experience during pregnancy can sometimes predict her risk of heart disease later in life. So it's something that we're paying a lot more attention to now in making sure that we can identify risk factors early. We don't want to wait and just put out the fire. Yeah. We want to stop the fire from ever starting. Yeah. And that's what prevention and longevity and health span is all about is, yeah. is early intervention, early detection. And a lot of that is lifestyle. Yeah. I will sit and talk to a person for an hour about their longevity, and 85% of that hour is talking about lifestyle. Well, I could talk all day about this topic. People who know me know that about me. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your wealth of expertise and experience. And I know that you have your online program. So we can work with you, your online program. We can dodge some of these hormonal potholes we've been talking about. Yeah, the, the program's called Reduce, Revive and Reignite, uh, a Women's Guide to the Menopause Transition. And it, it does. It focuses on weight. It focuses on energy level. It focuses on sex drive, all the things that commonly women experience. So it goes into great depth about the whys. I think that's important, understanding knowledge. But more importantly, we spend the majority of time talking about treatments, talking about solutions, talking about options. And so it's my way of giving back and doing for as many people as possible that I've been doing for 30 years with folks that are in my own practice to help them make this some of the most joyful times of their lives. I'll drink to that. Go to womensonlinewellness.com. That'll give them all the information they need. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I love to share this information with as many people who care to digest it. Uh, and they can find me on Facebook, Philippa Butler, Movement Specialist. I'm Moving Through Menopause is my podcast, and it's also my public Facebook group. So, I'm looking forward to remaining in touch with you and uh, getting heads together again at some point in the future. Thank you so much for what you're doing. This has been a joy, and I would love to come back anytime you'd have me. Okay. Well, it's a date. Thank you. Take care, and goodbye for now.